Yeah, no, because like when you talk about it, kind of my thought of like the problem of GMOs isn't like, oh, it's going to affect people or anything. It's about kind of the sustainability for the land because, you know, the nitrogen and that, if you have a higher yield, logically that the higher yield has to come from somewhere. But now, you know, as you explained, you have, you could have crops that are modified that even put it, but like put more of the nutrients and all that back. So in my head, it's like, well, is there any downside? Right. <laughs> and that's, that's the thing is, you know, I haven't seen a downside yet. And that's why I, I preach them so hard. Hello and welcome to Talk Ag to Me, the podcast dedicated to improving ag literacy around the globe. I'm your host, Brandon Black, and in today's episode, we're talking all about kind of a different topic today. Uh, the, the transition between countries from primary to tertiary sectors is one of them, but we're also going to talk about some hunting and just a few different ways that agriculture kind of intermingles with different types of societies. So here to help us with this topic today, I have my guest, uh, Allison, or I, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that properly. Yep, that's right. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and let you give your own introduction, kind of let everyone know who you are. All right. Uh, so today I'm Allison, uh, kind of not really more involved with agriculture. Uh, my background's more in finance and physics. I'm studying mm -hmm. physics at university. I also run a business in the financial sector. We're building out kind of education platform, brokerage, all that. If you look me up by my name, you can easily find any of that. I also have a podcast on the side uh, about finance and I, yeah, I do a bunch of stuff, but not much related to uh, agriculture, but I'm very interested in learning more. Awesome. Well, you know, like like most people that I've I brought on this podcast, we met on Reddit. Um, so I'm curious, you know, before hopping into the conversation, what was it that, that drew you to my podcast? You know, why, why did you all of a sudden have an interest in talking about agriculture? Well, there's two parts to it. So the first topic that I mentioned that it, for me, that's very much kind of economics related. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I find it quite interesting. I've actually had a discussion not that long ago before I uh, kind of got back to you about the topic. Mm -hmm. about the actual effects as like how countries transition it's something that i found like well how does this actually work today because there's a lot of kind of explanations and theory about how it went through for a lot of kind of western countries and how uh, the economy developed and industrialization and all that but i'm most quite interested in how does it actually work for countries today which are trying to transition uh between the primary to secondary and then tertiary sectors uh, within the economy. Now, when it comes to the hunting side, that comes more kind of out of a personal interest because I'm from Czech Republic, where we have a lot of gun culture. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I know you're from the U.S., so you guys are kind of the stereotype picture child of <laughs> gun culture. But I've, I've got to say, Czech Republic, much better gun rights, much better access because we have the right to bear arms and we actually uh, can get things that you guys aren't, which is kind <laughs> of funny nice. for a European country. Uh, so I was just kind of interested in that uh, since... Uh, you know, I down the line and check about like it's kind of a year long process to get a hunting permit. So it's kind of lengthy and you have to do a lot of training and stuff like that. And I'm going to have to study a lot of material anyway. So I was just wondering, how does it relate to it? Because the whole role of hunting in Czech Republic is solely for preservation and uh, agricultural purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think those are both really interesting topics and they're ones that we haven't really covered a whole lot on the podcast before. So I was really kind of drawn to those topics when you mentioned them. So I thought that'd be kind of an interesting thing to dive into. So Cool. I think that's kind of a good place to 
to start. So, I mean, it, it seems like you're a bit more drawn to the, to the first topic you, you brought up because, you know, from, from the uh, economic point of view, you seem to have a bit more of a foot in the door with that kind of information. So uh, before we hop into things for anyone who doesn't know, uh, could you, you know, just kind of briefly explain uh, what is meant by you know, a country transitioning from a, from a primary sector to a secondary or tertiary sector? So essentially primary, secondary, tertiary are kind of like groups of industries. So primary is more of kind of the farming side. So typically when a company is heavily uh, employed, you know, when the employment, so where people work is heavily in the primary sector, that typically means majority of the people uh, farm. So you have usually small farms owned by individuals or small groups, and that's where majority of the people are employed. Secondary is then typically kind of manufacturing and, and you know, the industrial side. So for example, if you look at kind of China, where they were about 10 years, 10, 15 years ago, with heavily, heavily kind of focused on manufacturing, that would be kind of the secondary sector. And then tertiary is kind of the services side. So for example, uh, you know, like banking, uh, flower shops, which are like things like that. And there's actually kind of a new one that's quaternary, which is the high tech cutting edge innovation stuff. But there's some discussion whether to actually accept that. So I'm not gonna get into all that. <laughs> You know, it's interesting that, you know, that, that breakdown reminds me a lot of the, um, agri actually the agricultural revolutions. And so, mm -hmm. uh, for, I'm not, I'm not sure if, if you're familiar with, with these revolutions, but, uh, basically we, we have some controversy on whether or not we're in the fourth or the fifth, but kind of for similar reasons. Um, but the agricultural revolutions were based around that similar idea. You know, the first revolution is that we figured out how to farm. We have basic tools. We kind of, you know, we, we established a, a sustainable form of, of producing food at a consistent rate. And then the second revolution was introduction of technology like uh, like tractors you know like it was like the mechanization of agriculture uh you know the, the introduction of a lot new you know a lot newer uh, tools that like the, the plow and like you know things that we typically wouldn't have had access to and then the third revolution came around in, in like the mid 1900s or the, the 20th century um and it was the uh, also known as the green revolution and it was the introduction of like chemical uh, fertilizers and pesticides and that sort of thing and so and then we got into the the revolution that we're in now which is kind of being called the automized revolution and i personally believe that we're in a fifth revolution that's kind of starting but that's being debated right now because we're going back and forth between are we in the automized revolution or are we in the regenerative re re revolution where you know not only are we you know, more automized in the sense that all of our technology that we originally had is now being ran by computers and a lot more advanced, you know, with, with artificial intelligence, and all that kind of stuff. But now we're using older, more traditional methods of agriculture combined with newer technologies. So that way it's less harmful to the environment and getting the better yield that we are trying to get from, from the commercial side of things. So it's a, when you were explaining that, I was like, huh, I see a parallel here. That kind of, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It, it kind of, it, I'm, I'm sure it kind of links together because like a lot of the kind of the, the justification for moving from primary to secondary to tertiary to potentially quaternary is based around uh, kind of the production of food supply. Mm -hmm. So it was when we could, you know, when a smaller group of people basically could supply uh, the food supply for everyone else, it's when we were able to kind of move to industrialization and then all the other sectors. So I'm, it, it, it would appear to me that it is quite linked. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it kind of makes sense that it is uh, yeah. similar in their way. 
Yeah. And I would say that, that, you know, uh, you're, you're asking about how agriculture kind of, you know, evolves with, with societies as they go through those, those sector changes. I would say that that's probably, you know, as close to your, to your answer as I, as I can get in a single explanation is that, you know, agriculture evolves almost simultaneously with the, with the societies, you know, as, as they move into secondary and tertiary and, and, and potentially the, you know, the fourth sector that you were, you were mentioning, that's kind of being debated right now. Um, it seems that agriculture kind of, it's evolving simultaneously, but almost separately. And, mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is, is that um, I actually just did an episode on, on this about how the uh, like the urban communities, the more, you know, the more industrially industrially developed communities in a society will evolve technologically. And, you know, they'll kind of go off and, you know, they have, um, you know, what we, what we consider to be a more civilized, you know, styled society, you know, they they have mm. a lot more buildings, they have a lot more, you know, different types of jobs, there's a variety in, in what the needs of those people are. And agriculture almost doesn't necessarily get forgotten, but it's more along the lines of like, agriculture is not their primary concern anymore. So people kind of just don't focus on it as much as, as other issues. And I think that that can be best summed up with, you know, there was a, there was a quote and again, for life, I can't remember who said it, but basically it was when we don't have food, we have one problem. When we have food, we have many problems. And it's, you know, it's, it's that idea that, you know, if we, if we need to focus on a way to grow food, that's the only thing we need to focus on. As soon as we kind of figure that out, then that's not really something that we need to worry about as much anymore because that one's already kind of taken care of. And so I think that that's probably I would say that's probably the case for most countries that, that transition from those primary sectors to the other sectors is that they've kind of just figured out how to get food to a you know food production to a point where they're satisfied with it. And so while the food production industry may evolve, technologically speaking, it isn't a primary focus in terms of careers anymore. You know, so you'll start to see uh, lower percentages of the population involved in food production and you know, higher percentages involved in more scientific or technological careers that end up going back into benefiting food production as kind of a byproduct. Yeah, no, like looking at it, because for me, like you could see this kind of as a clear path when it was kind of the cutting edge innovation. So as you, you know, uh, let's say as you brought automation more, uh, towards to farming and a lot of this, uh, that was usually kind of with the cutting edge of the technology. But what, what I'm kind of really unsure about, or that I'm like looking at with the with the transitions of, uh, you know, countries which are still in the primarily in the primary and secondary sectors as far as the uh, employment there, is for them it's not really kind of a limitation of what's currently cutting edge. They're very much transitioning by kind of acquiring this technology from other areas. Uh, you know, from other countries where it's already been developed. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of wondering, is are there any kind of changes in this approach? Is it just accelerated because the technology is already there? Or is it, uh, for example, you know, g- you know, large government funding really pushing this up? Because, for example, we can see in Brazil, uh, there's a lot of kind of a push to uh, grow, you know, uh, grow farming quite a bit to group it together under bigger businesses. And there is uh, quite a bit of kind of governmental support to that, uh, helps it move much faster towards kind of automation, a lot of that, and scale it up quite quickly, hmm. or whether for the majority of the countries, it is still kind of the natural progression we've seen historically. So to that, I would say that I think it's a bit of both um, there, you know, and, and, you know, this is all going to be dependent on, you know, it's going to be like a, a country by country basis, you know, not hmm. every country is going to go through this transformation in the same ways. Um, I think that there is a natural uh, cycle through which these things are going to happen. You know, these countries are naturally going to reach that point at some point, you know, in the future. Uh, it may be accelerated through government support, but I've also found that there are some countries that don't have government support in terms of agricultural 
you know, production. And so they often either kind of struggle agriculturally or they, they have to reach out to other countries for, for that support. So an example of that would be uh, through the use of biotechnology and GMOs. There's a lot of countries that straight up ban GMOs or, or they ban any, any form of growing that to get that kind of food. And because of that, they are almost entirely dependent on imports. And they're even, you know, they're starting to see uh, larger rates of food, uh, food deserts starting to appear in their countries. Um, actually, I talked to a Swedish farmer a few years ago about this. He was talking about how uh, Sweden hasn't completely outlawed GMOs, but they're basically uh, like socially banned. You know, people mm. won't buy them, so they so nobody grows them. And because of that, their food supply has has shrunken so much that they're almost entirely dependent on imports just to be able to have a, a steady food supply. And so, and like the same kind, you know, the same but different kind of things are happening in developing countries that are trying to become more agriculturally independent, but either their governments don't really support agriculture as much. And so they can, they, t- they tend to kind of struggle for that sort of thing, or they have a, uh, an issue with their land, whether it's infertile or, you know, like the, like the soil is just not quite to, you know, to snuff to be able to grow the kinds of crops that they need to grow, or they don't get enough rain, or they just don't have the infrastructure in place, whatever it is. Uh, a lot of the issues that, that have to do with a lot of developing countries, you know, getting out of that, you know, that struggle with farming has to do with, they don't have access to, to, you know, to that kind of stuff because of, you know, lack of government support or lack of foreign support or whatever it is. Uh, to give an example for that, um, I know that in, in a few uh, developing countries, we actually exported uh, golden rice, a genetically modified crop that was, you know, engineered to, to try to benefit uh, children that were suffering from anemia and from other, uh, you know, uh, the vitamin A deficiencies and other sort of you know issues from that, um, but I think that having having government support and having foreign aid and having you know all these things definitely accelerates the process. But I think that at some you know at, to some degree it is going to happen naturally for most countries as long as they're not kind of stuck in an economic hole where they're just kind of you know they're they're never going to get out of that sector. You know mm-hmm. as long as they are progressing at even at like the, at the slowest rate possible eventually they will reach you know that, that same level of, of evolution as the other countries it, it just might take a little bit longer if that makes yeah, sense that actually kind of gave me an idea that i got thinking about because we have you know if you look at a lot of countries like a lot of western countries there's a lot of subsidization of the farming industry to kind of I, I suppose that would be to keep it viable and affordable to a lot of people mm-hmm. so like w- has there been kind of a transformation due to like that there's that has just become so much more expensive that this is required or what like why has the farming industry in a lot of the western countries become so dependent on subsidization so there's there's a few reasons for that uh some of it is that you know due to environmental changes there's a lot of land that wasn't quite as as arable as it used to be and so because of that it costs a bit more to be able to, to produce on that land at the rate that it used to be produced um, I think one of the largest reasons for, subsidi- for subsidization, and it, this might also vary from country to country, but regulations tend to be uh, a big cause of it. I, I've noticed that in in areas where there are higher regulations, there are also higher subsidies. It's almost as if the government's saying like, hey, sorry that we're making you play by our rules, so we'll pay you a bit more to, to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that might be part of it as well. But I, I think that you're right in, you know, in, in the sense that it seems that in countries where they're more agriculturally viable, there seems to be higher rates of subsidization. I think it's because the government start to realize like, hey, there are some countries out there that are as technologically advanced as we are, and they are not doing as well agriculturally. We better make sure we protect our farms before they start to go down that route. And so I think there's a little bit of, you know, there's a little bit of give and take there as well as, you know, they just don't, they don't want to risk running out of 
a source of food, but they also don't want to give, you know, the, the, the agricultural communities too much, uh, like going back to the regulation thing, they don't want to give them too much freedom in terms of what they can grow and what they can't, because that might throw off, you know, the economy or it might throw off the markets or it might throw off the environment. You know, like, there's so many factors that are reliant on what the agricultural communities are, are doing that it, it's almost in the benefit of the government to kind of make sure that everyone's playing fair and that everyone's doing what, what is best for the country, not just what, what's best for them. So if that kind of makes sense, I'm not sure if that, if that was. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. But it, it kind of got me thinking about uh, kind of the, the, like the balance between the long term and the short term, because if you have countries with a lot of subsidization, that would, you know, in my head, that would encourage a lot more farmers to produce, you know, aim for higher yields and really focus on the short term. But from you know, middle school far education about agriculture. So I'm sure this is there's more <laughs> complexities to this. But if you farm land a lot with like a lot of crops all the time, that a lot of the nutrients and all that that's required for a lot of the crops would kind of decrease in the amount of it that's in the soil. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't like how how does how is this balanced? Because for countries which have good quality soil that can be quite used for farming it would seem to me like they should encourage a bit less farming so it is more long-term sustainable uh, as far as uh, kind of the food supply as opposed to really pushing for you know high subsidization because high subsidization means higher uh, kind of more better prices for the farmers and as such naturally i would i would feel like it would encourage more produce to be made yeah no i mean that's that's an excellent point and that's actually I'm glad that you brought that up because that is an important piece of that conversation is, you know, like you mentioned, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for us to keep farming and to pay farmers to keep farming if it's going to if it's going to destroy the soil or the environment or, you know, the, the surrounding areas, because that's one of the primary complaints against agriculture is that it's environmentally damaging. The solution to that is that at least in the United States, I know some other governments are kind of working on this, too, but they are actually subsidizing farmers to use more environmentally friendly methods. So uh, I know that in my local area, uh, regenerative agriculture has been starting to become adopted more often, which, you know, involves a lot of like no-till, it involves uh, cover crops that not only do they do they not disturb the soil, but they actually take nitrogen from the from the atmosphere and put it back into the soil, they can even absorb carbon from the atmosphere and kind of reduce the carbon emission rate and put that back into the soil as well to try to regenerate some of those microbiomes that were that were destroyed by crops that kind of leached them. Um, so that's something that's been working, that's been being in, in, in the works. Uh, I know for dairy operations that a lot of dairies are being paid by the government to produce um, or to construct uh, methane digesters, which are these massive machines that basically take methane that the cows are producing and convert it into a renewable energy source. And so like there's there's a ton of, you know, newer innovations. And this is kind of what I was talking about. This is what I believe is the fifth, you know, the fifth revolution of agriculture mm -hmm. is, you know, it's the combination of newer technologies with more traditional sustainable methods that are better for the environment and get the higher yield at the same time. And so the governments are, are really trying to look into that kind of stuff. And they're really pushing, you know, the environmental scientists and, and the and the, uh, you know, the agricultural scientists, they're really pushing to kind of get information out on this stuff so that way they know what to subsidize and what not to but right now the focus is let's subsidize all the things that are good for the environment and are still going to feed enough people and so you're you are seeing yes there are some farms that are being subsidized to to leach the ground essentially which is something that we're trying to get around but we're kind of it's a similar situation as the you know, gas versus electric car kind of situation it's like mm -hmm. we don't have the proper technology to completely replace the gas industry yet so we have to kind of tough it out for now, but eventually we would like to replace it with a more sustainable source. And that's the same thing for agriculture is that right now we're doing what we can to feed the population and to get our yields as high as possible. 
we understand that it's not the best thing for the soil. It's not the worst either, though, because we 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 are definitely, especially through the use of genetic modification and with and with other technologies, we are definitely leaving less of a footprint than we ever have. And we're trying to imp implement new technologies that are going to reverse our footprint and actually give back to the environment. And so that's kind of the that's the balancing act that you're looking for. Is you know we're subsidizing things that are actually doing well and getting the the yields that we're looking for. And what about kind of the, the scaling of that? Because this kind of just gave uh, reminded me of the fact that like basically this the sizing of the population as kind of the optimization problem so you have enough in taxes to take care of the population that cannot make income so it's it's like the issue china is facing where they don't have a sufficiently uh, sized labor force and it's it's going to continue shrinking which is going to significantly harm their economy mm -hmm. but so you know you naturally need a, a, like a slight increase in, in uh, the size of the population to have a sustainable economy long term uh, for others, uh, you know, for other things. So is like, you know, whenever things like this are being planned, how, you know, how is the, how are the considerations of the, I, I, it sounds horrible to say population management, but I, I guess population management, <laughs> like taken into account for kind of the projections of what will be needed in the future as far like long term future as far as the scale of crops and agriculture that will be needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, the population is definitely one of the major concerns of agriculture right now, especially because we've, you know, anyone who's involved in agriculture kind of knows the statistic of, you know, by the year 2050, we're supposed to have a population of almost 10 billion people. And, you know, we're going to have to feed people that about 70% more, you know, food than we ever have, been, have produced in the history of agriculture. And like that, all these numbers are around there, just, you know, just to kind of remind us that like, hey, we, we have a lot of work to do. So the population is definitely something that agriculture is concerned about. Um, I'm not sure we found a surefire solution just yet uh, because the, you know, the most simplistic solution is, Hey, we have a lot of people who are unemployed. We have a lot of jobs in agriculture that need to be filled, but that's not the, you know, that's not the most sustainable solution because not all those people are suitable for agricultural jobs or not all people want to work in agricultural sectors. Um, we have found, at least in the United States, uh, we have found a lot of success in using the workforce from, you know, foreign aid, you know, bringing in, uh, immigrants from, you know, from, from, uh, especially from, from Mexico and from, you know, some from Canada as well to, to help on some of these farms. And actually I was just talking to my roommates about this last night, you know, if, if we could benefit those, those workers a bit more by aiding with their, you know, with their path to citizenship, instead of just, you know, punishing them for even trying, then I think that would help out with, with that, with the workforce situation quite a bit, but it really, it, it becomes a balancing act of, you know, how much of the population can we get involved in agriculture and keep them involved in agriculture. And kind of what I mean by that is, um, one of the big issues that we're seeing in agriculture is like the average age of at least in, you know, I'm, most of my statistics are going to come from the United States just because that's what I'm most familiar with. I have some stuff from other countries, but that's kind of, you know, and, and the United States is a, is a half decent model for agriculture around the world because a lot of other countries start to kind of base their systems off of the, off of United States agriculture. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of other more developed countries are starting to see these same statistics start to come true. But in the United States, the average age of the American farmer is about 58 years old and he's getting older. It used to be 57 oh, wow. a couple years ago and then 56. Yeah, they're getting old. Um, yeah. Less than 2% of our population is actively involved in producing food. Like we have next to no actual farmers left. And I'm not saying we need more farmers, but we definitely need more people involved and interested in the industry. And so a lot of the solution there kind of goes back into education. It's, you know, introducing agriculture back into schools and kind of reminding people like, Hey, there's a ton of jobs out there that require you, you know, that, that would be really nice to, to 
have you as part of, and it doesn't involve working on a farm, you know, agricultural research is a thing. Agricultural law is a thing. Agricultural, like, you know, uh, like, um, People involved in, you know, people who want to get involved in computer science, that's, there's an ag job for that. I actually know people who went to school for computer science, had no experience in agriculture whatsoever. They became computer engineers for John Deere. They designed GPSs that were using in tractors. Um, I know people who were in, you know, who were technologists that they were, you know, studying to be engineers and they designed drones for, to, use, to be used on farms now. Like there's a ton of application for non-agricultural jobs in the agricultural sector that are not only applicable to agriculture, but they also don't require people to get, you know, get down and dirty like they don't want to do. And so my proposed solution for the, you know, the population issue is if we can incorporate them back into agriculture, if we can kind of remind them how much agriculture has to offer them, then maybe, and I'm not saying everyone needs to get involved in agriculture, but maybe we can see more of a push towards people to get involved in jobs that benefit agriculture. And that would, that would kind of, I'm not sure necessarily that would fix our, our issue of you know the population disparity between the agricultural communities and, and the non, but that might at least mitigate some of the issues that are being caused by having an overwhelming population that's not involved in agriculture and a minuscule population that is. Yeah, no, like I have to say, like whenever I look at agriculture, it's so fucking high tech nowadays. Like it's so cool. There's so much stuff. Yes. <laughs> like and whenever I don't know, I, I just really kind of. Uh, I kind of appreciate just how much technology there is. Because actually back home, so I'm, I'm originally from Czech Republic, mm -hmm. and about three minutes away from where my house is is a big research institute for agriculture where they do a lot of testing uh, for some things for the local agriculture university. Mm. And it's really kind of like, I'm like, this is cool. <laughs> Why don't people, aren't people more aware of this? Because, you know, I, you talk to people in like tech or something, and they're like, oh, yeah, I want to go research AI and machine learning. And I'm like, you could do that. You could do that in agriculture. There's so many like really cool opportunities that I kind of see there. And I'm like, well, if, if finance, you know, maybe one day I could kind of look that there. Cause there's just so much cool stuff there. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I don't know, like it definitely feels like just, yeah, like there should be kind of more encouragement possibly, or just more awareness the way I look mm -hmm. at it of kind of what, what's, what's out there. Because if I had, if, you know, if I didn't live so close to the research institute, I don't think I've ever would have known just how high tech actually maybe maybe not because i just remembered there's the game what is it called like the farming simulator or whatever oh that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that like showed off a little like a lot of kind of cool to dodge like gps farming and all that mm -hmm. i think has that actually has there been any study as far as the impact it has had as to bringing more people to agriculture because i feel like that would encourage a lot of people because of the technology that it shows off so i would have to do some research to get the actual numbers but i have seen uh, articles before that I've talked about how a lot more, you know, a lot of people who play farming simulator, they may not be actively involved in, in the industry, but they seem to at least have more of an appreciation and kind of awareness of agriculture from that point, which I think is awesome. You know, as someone who's doing a podcast around teaching people about agriculture, I think that's kind of a good thing. Um, and not just farming simulator. There are other games that help out with that too. Uh, Stardew Valley is one of them. Uh, Harvest Moon. Stardew you know, Valley is so good. Yes. I love that game. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do an episode on that one soon, but yeah, no, there's, there's so many games and, and, you know, movies and TV shows that are subtly introducing agriculture to people, but like, it's not, they don't feel like it's being shoved down their throats. They're just kind of enjoying it. And then they start to realize, is this actually how it works in real life? And they look it up and they start to realize that even farming simulator is a bit behind in terms of the technology. Like you don't have access to drones and, you know, and precision agriculture and artificial intelligence and all that kind of stuff on the farming simulator farms. You just have like a GPS tractor or two. And so I think that, you know, even 
as those games develop, there's going to be more and more people involved in agriculture because they're not going to, they're not, they're not even going to realize just how much of, you know, how much there is in, in agriculture. Like you said, there's mm-hmm. so many opportunities that people tend to not even be aware of. Like I always encourage people, like I have a friend who wants to be an accountant and I'm like, Hey, that's great. You should go be an accountant for a farm. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he looks into it. Farm accountants make a lot of money because it's really, really hard <laughs> to manage, you know, the finances of a farm. And so like, there's, you know, there's so many different jobs in agriculture that are jobs that you wouldn't typically think of, but it's really cool when people kind of find out like, Hey, what I want to do applies to agriculture. Why don't I just do it for that? Cause they're like, Oh, I support agriculture, but I want to do this instead. It's like, why not do both? You know, you don't have to be involved in, in producing the food, but you can still help support the industry by doing this as an ag person. Yeah. Like th- this kind of sounds to me like, cause you know, we talked about kind of the three stages and possibly mm-hmm. the fourth one, which are kind of mapped in like kind of moves as the, as, as a lot of the workforce has moved around to kind of tertiary like secondary tertiary mm-hmm. ternary and it kind of sounds like to me there needs to be a fifth move <laughs> that goes like a bit rebalancing back to the primary sector because there is just so much linked to it yes it, no, I don't, it feels like that that would be a definitely some kind of an interesting study to kind of look at I, I might actually bring it up to some of my friends who are doing economics uh, as a thing they could look into because i feel like that could be a very interesting move that's that you know, based on the way you talk about it, it's probably going to happen within the next 20, 30 years. Oh, definitely. I'm actually studying something right now that I'm doing a mini series on my, on my podcast about kind of like a theory that I have about uh, the cyclical nature of the urban rural split. So kind of what, what caused the urban communities to separate from the rural communities and why people aren't as aware of agriculture and aren't as exposed to what's actually available in it. And why most people don't even realize that agriculture is evolving at the rate that it is, and then kind of how they're starting to get back into it. You know, over the mm-hmm. past 30, 40 years, there, we've seen this massive division of people, and actually it's, it's been even longer than that. You know, people moving away from, from the countryside of things, they're moving more into the cities, which is fine, but then they start to have a, a misconceptions about agriculture and, and kind of what's going into their food, and that causes fear, and it causes a bunch of other things that are, are causing issues for agriculture. And then now we're starting to see people get back in, involved in it. And like you said, they're, you know, they're seeing things like, you know, on, on movies, on video games, on TV that are interesting to them and then kind of bringing them back to, and especially during the whole, you know, during the whole quarantine, during lockdown and everything, the amount of gardeners and the amount of people who got involved in agriculture just out of pure curiosity from that was huge. I had so many people coming to me, asking me questions about stuff that they had never even, you know, been on a farm before. And they were asking me questions that I didn't expect them to be able to even have a, have a solid awareness of because they hadn't been exposed to it. And so I think that, you know, to kind of cover your point about the fifth, you know, potential move of, of the, you know, the, I don't even know what way you would call it a, a, a quint, quintary. Uh, I, I don't know what the, what the fifth, the fifth movement would be called, but yeah, that yeah. idea, um, I think it'd be really yeah. interesting to cover. I think like I, I was definitely kind of, as you were talking, I was started thinking about kind of the effects of kind of COVID quarantine because a lot of people have kind of moved out more, mm-hmm. you know, some to the suburbs, but even further more into the countryside. I know a lot of people from, you know, the financial sector and uh, like consulting, a lot of these kind of stereotypical high paying jobs who are now buying up like a small farm out in the countryside mm-hmm. because they can just work remotely and they're now getting a lot more interested in and all right, let's, you know, I bought a farm, so let's actually use a bit of that land or see how that goes. So there's, I think there's definitely going to be a, a change there that COVID has had a positive impact on, I would say, and especially kind of around the fear uh, that you kind of, the people don't understand what's going on. It is going to bring that closer. But speaking of fear, there's a kind of a point I made, bullet point I made here 
that I wanted to kind of come back to. It's kind of like talking about GMOs a little bit because like GMOs, like naturally, it's just genetically modified, which there's nothing wrong with. It's just the, you know, the more nutrients it takes. But the, when I kind of look at it is because you talked about the kind of supply that's required and, you know, the, the, ba- the balancing act, I suppose, there is like, is the outlawing and kind of restrictions on GMOs in many countries, are they really on all GMOs as it's kind of would seem to you know, a lay person like me? Or they actually kind of very much focus on GMOs, which are very bad for the land and allow for some of the more kind of GM. Actually, are there any GMOs which are more kind of sustainable farming focused than just high yield focused? So that's that's an excellent question, and it's it's a lot more complex than the usual are GMOs bad or good kind of conversation because it speci- it, you know specifies are there different types of GMOs and are some good and are some bad and the countries that outlaw them do they only outlaw the bad ones or do they outlaw all of them? In my experience, you know, through the research that I've done, it seems that the countries that have banned GMOs ban all of them. It's just a flat ban on anything that's, that's genetically modified. Um, and this is the problem I have with it is they, they, they don't define GMO very well. Like we, we all kind of, you know, we can, if you say a GMO, everyone kind of knows what you're talking about. It's something that was done in a lab. It's something that, you know, typically they, they transferred a gene from, from one species into another species and that caused an alteration in their genetic code. Like that's kind of what was agreed upon to be a, G- a GMO. But if we're speaking generally, you know, and, and, you know, the, the words matter here, I mean, this is just semantics, but genetically modified organism. If you have a dog today, it is a genetically modified organism. You know, if you have like any, any animal, any crop, any, any human today is a genetically modified organism. Our genes have been modified just through, you know, just through natural selection, through selective breeding, through evolution. You know, we are not the same genetically that we were a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, 10,000 years ago, you know, whatever. A lot of things have changed genetically for most living things on earth. So you can say technically that everything is a genetically modified organism. It's just, I think that like a almost like a more accurate term would be an artificially genetically modified organism. I think that's kind of the better yeah. way to look at it. Um, and that's why I have a problem with, with countries banning GMOs is that like, I mean, technically if you ban GMOs, you ban everything, but that's beside the point. I, I, I get, I get what their point is though. Um, to my knowledge. So this is something I need to kind of preface this conversation with. There are not that many GMOs. There's this idea that like, you know, 90% of crops are genetically modified. That's not true. Um, there's only a, there's, I think there's about 20 crops and actually, and let me look it up for you real quick. I think there's only about 20 crops in total. They're genetically modified. Um, some of the big ones are like corn, soybeans. I think, I believe maybe cotton, uh, there, you know, some of those corn is the most genetically modified about 98% of all corn is genetically modified, but that's kind of the only crop that we have. That's like that genetically modified. Most of their crops, it's like, you know, less than 50% of them are actually genetically modified. There's not that many. Um, but when people talk about, you know, are GMOs good or bad or are there, are, are there good and are there bad GMOs? Oh yeah. So here we go. Today, there are 10 GMO crops currently produced in the U S while more than 120 GM seeds with the unique, unique traits have been deregulated more than 90% of corn, soybean, cotton, canola, and sugar beet acreage in, in the U S is GMO. So that's, that's U S mm-hmm. but we, I know that we tend to be a lot more accepting of, of GMOs in most of their countries. So I would argue that most countries probably have even less than we do. And we only have 10. So that's kind of puts in perspective just how little this is actually being used and how large the fear is over a threat. That's really not that, that bad. Um, 
to answer your question about the, you know, the, you know, the, the, um, utility of GMOs, like, are they good or are they bad or are there good and bad kind of situation? There have been in, and, you know, again, I, I'm only one guy I've done research for years. You know, I started doing research when I was about 16. I've been doing research ever since and I'm 21 now. So I've got about five to six years worth of research that I've updated every year. And to this day, I haven't found a single credible source that has, has linked GMOs to any kind of negative effects. Um, even environmentally speaking, there hasn't really been any connection between genetically modified organisms and, you know, environmental damage or health effects or, you know, anything like that. Um, and, you know, that begs the question of why we're not doing it more. Well, for one, it's really hard to do. And for two, it's expensive. And for three, a lot of people don't like them. So we don't do them for that reason. But typically GMOs are genetically modified for like one of like three different reasons. Usually it's yield, it's resistance, and it's durability. So what I mean by that is like, so for yield, yield's kind of, oops, sorry, yield's kind of self-explanatory. So, you know, if, if you genetically modify corn, it's going to produce more corn. Um, if you genetically modify cotton, it's going to produce more cotton, you know, yield is, is, and that's actually been proven that, you know, there was a study done by North Carolina university that was, uh, about, tw- uh, a tobacco crop that was genetically modified had about 20% increase in yield versus a non-genetically modified tobacco crop. 20% is not a lot, but it's also tobacco. You know, every crop's going to be different. It's going to have different yields, all that kind of stuff. So yield is a big one because we just, we want to be able to produce more food. Another one is resistance. A lot of crops are genetically modified to become resistant to pests, to weather, to, you know, all kinds of different, uh, you know, outside, you know, potential dangers to those crops. Uh, we genetically modify corn to be, to have an internal pesticide. So basically whenever a, a bug eats it, it dies. And that pesticide doesn't affect humans at all. I mean, there's never been a single report of a person getting sick from genetically modified uh, corn that has been linked to the ingredients inside the corn being changed. Um, and actually it's, it's a positive thing from a, from an environmental point of view, because that means we don't have to spray pesticides on it, which lowers the amount of, of residue available in the soil. And that increases the health of that soil. So genetically modified crops are actually more beneficial for the environment instead of less. So, uh, like I mentioned earlier, we use some crops that are able to take nitrogen and carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back in the soil. We are able to genetically modify crops that couldn't do that before. And now they can. So now we have even more crops that can do that kind of stuff. Uh, we, we've been able to genetically modify strawberries. So that way they're more resistant to cold because they typically would die in a, in a cold storm. So it's like a lot of the, the reasons we genetically modify things is for the safety of the crop. It's that way we can keep them around longer. They can benefit the environment for, for a longer rate for us. That way they can produce more food for us, all that kind of stuff. Um, like I said, to this day, it hasn't been brought to my attention in any way that genetically modified crops have had any negative health effects or negative impact on the environment. And so I think a lot of the reason that they're banned by a lot of countries is due to fear mongering, but there could be some other external reasons that I just haven't come across yet. So I'm not going to say it's impossible. Yeah, no, because like when you talk about it, kind of my thought of like the problem of GMOs isn't like, oh, it's going to affect people or anything. It's about kind of the sustainability for the land because you know, the nitrogen and that, if you have a higher yield, logically that the higher yield has to come from somewhere. But now, you know, as you explained, you have, you could have crops that are modified that even put it, like put more of the nutrients and all that back. So in my head, it's like, is there any downside? (laughs) And that's, that's the thing is, you know, I haven't seen a downside yet. And that's why I I preach them so hard. You know, there aren't, there aren't many things that I 
say there is no disadvantage to this. We should be doing this all the time because most things have a downside, obviously. But GMOs is one of the few things that nobody has really been able to find yet. I mean, the only downside that we could possibly pin is that they've been around for 26 years and that there's still the potential that something might come out of it that we haven't seen yet. But 26 years is a pretty long time. I mean, I know it's not as long as some other, you know, technological advancements that we've made, but it's a pretty decent, you know, chunk of, of time that we, you think we would have figured it out by now if there was something to be worrying about. Well, it, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to be fair and I kind of approach it for the scientific side, uh, when studying kind of the effects on people uh, as far as kind of the long-term things, 26 years is really nowhere near enough. I think it, it took, a, like, if you look at how long it took with, for example, tobacco to properly be aware of the negative effects, That's that was fair. far more than 26 years. So what, you know, like, in my opinion, I'm completely fine with GMOs and that, you know, but just was concerned about the impact. Now that you explained that the impact's not really notable uh, off on the land, then I'm just, all right, yeah, let's just use GMOs mm -hmm. everywhere. But I would say saying, well, we've had them for 26 years. I would say that's not a sufficient if we reach a point where we notice some, you know, minor negative effects uh, that we haven't seen yet. It's, you know, let's, I understand it's, you know, bad to do with, because it is people's lives, but what we can, uh, let's like how you could look at it this way. If the if you increase the yield twenty percent, and you mentioned we need to increase the uh, the yields by seventy percent uh, to sustain the global population, well, like what is better? So, so potentially some minor effects that we're not aware of, or you know a ton of people starving. And there it just seems to me well, let's just go with GMOs. Like what's the problem? Right, and and that's been my argument from day one is that you know we really let's just say that there, you know, even if, if there is potential side effects that we haven't seen yet, it's entirely possible. Like I said, you know, like, you know, or like you mentioned with the tobacco issue, you know, 26 years isn't very long in, in scientific terms, but it's because we haven't seen any major red flags, like right, you know, w within these 26 years. And because we need such an increase in our yields, I don't think it's a bad, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a bad idea to kind of look towards the options that we have. Um, I've had people ask before, like, well, I mean, right now we have a sufficient food supply. We actually have way too much food. We're wasting food. You know, why do we need to increase our yields right now? And my response to that is always, well, if we don't increase them now and we get to 2050 where we need to increase them and we don't know if GMOs are going to work, we're going to be kind of up a creek without a paddle. You know, it's better that we experiment with it now, see that it works, make sure that it's sustainable and, yeah you know, in, ensure that we're not going to go into this blindly without any kind of backup. Like, yeah, we, we may be increasing yields for no reason. And, you know, there are potential, you know, ramifications to that, that that we might see later down the road, but we haven't seen any right now. Everything's been, been, been environmentally sustainable. Everything's been great with it. And we want to make sure that we have it ready for when we need it. Yeah, no, that, that absolutely makes sense. I've honestly, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I have anything to say on GMOs because it's, I'm just like, yeah, so it sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. <laughs> it's uh, like, the thing is, has there been any moves as far as GMOs to kind of more deregulate them in a lot of countries? Because, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like 20 and it seems to me most of my life that I've been aware of GMOs, they've already always been very frowned upon and restricted. So has there been any kind of more of a recent move that has, increase the popularity of GMOs? So yes and no. There's been uh, a little bit of both. There's been bigger pushes against GMOs and there hasn't been bigger pushes for GMOs. So it's kind of not necessarily that the, the public perception of GMOs has gotten better, but there's been more awareness at least of what they are and kind of what they're doing. 
Um, so there, there's two organizations that I kind of always cite for these. There's the non-GMO, uh, I think it's called the non-GMO project or something like that. And it's focused on trying to like dispel GMOs kind of like, you know, basically tell people why they should not be trusting GMOs. I've gone through their website a million times. I've like researched every paper they've written. They haven't really come up with anything that's that, you know, that's that like definitive. Yes, this is an issue. It's a lot of speculation and what ifs. And, you know, that's, you know, that's fine for, for, you know, people who are worried, but if we're looking at a, you know, a, a potential solution that we need to be able to count on, we kind of want some concrete yes or no's. And so that's where the GMO literacy project comes in. And the GMO literacy project is, is an organization that's focused on the opposite. It's actually trying to raise awareness for the benefit of GMOs. And since, since their efforts have, have become more popular on social media, there has been a bit more of a, an acceptance of GMOs, especially in, in, you know, a lot of uh, Western civilizations, but I, I still haven't seen a lot of push in countries that have already kind of outlawed them to, to reverse that idea. Um, mm-hmm. I know there are some, some GMO activist groups, isn't quite the word, isn't quite the word I'm looking for, but kind of like, you know, it's like supporters that, that are mm-hmm. trying to make it more, you know, um, more understood to those, to those governments, but they're kind of, you know, they haven't had a whole lot of luck. I know a lot of farmers in those areas. So that Swedish farmer I was talking to is one of them that have tried communicating with their governments have basically tried to, you know, voice their concerns with the governments and with the local communities about GMOs being outlawed because it's going to lower their ability to even produce food and at a successful rate. And they haven't had much luck. So the efforts are getting better, but they haven't made a ton of ground yet. Right. And so, you know, looking at it, if there's clear kind of scientific pattern of, well, there, there's no clear issues. A lot of that's kind of fear mongering. Then, you know, I understand whenever there's fear, there's a lot of money to be made on it. But what is kind of the, is there some overarching motivation for a lot of these kind of anti-GMO organizations or is it purely just driving fear because fear can drive revenue? I think that, I mean, I don't ever want to say that everything, that something is completely motivated by, by money or, you know, by greed or just by people trying to take advantage of scared people. But I haven't seen a whole lot of, of any other motivation. I know that non-GMO food obviously costs more than GMO food. And so that can be a a driving factor for it. Um, Anything that has the non-GMO label on it, the non-GMO project gets profits off of that food. And so that's kind of already, you know, that should be a a red flag right there. It's not like the GMO literacy project gets money off of genetically modified food. So it's like, why are we paying (laughs) an organization that's telling us that what we're buying is bad? Maybe they should. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, GMO tags, the trend in the uh food grace also right food grace yeah that, that might change some people's opinions on on how the the dynamic works but yeah no, like we're, we're paying an organization who's telling us what we're eating is bad and it, it doesn't really make much sense to me from that perspective i do know that some of the fears that they have been kind of preaching about are mostly health related they haven't really had any kind of supportive claims on gmos in the environment that's one that they just kind of accept as as just how it is they've tried to make claims about like oh yeah gmos have pesticides in them which is bad but it's like well actually they're lowering the rate of pesticides we have to apply which is good you know like they they have pesticides in them for a reason and they're not harmful to humans they've already been proven to not be harmful to humans unless again we haven't seen the long-term effects yet Mm. um but their main concerns have to do with certain so like roundup uh, i'm sure you've heard like the roundup controversies um Uh, no not really okay so roundup is an is an herbicide uh that 
is basically it's mostly used to like kill weeds. Um, it's, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a, um, you know, we, we use it in agriculture. Well, not anymore. Um, but we used to use it in agriculture to kill off a lot of weeds and it was produced by a company called Monsanto and Monsanto was under a lot of heat for using uh, roundup because it contained a chemical called glyphosate, which was incredibly, uh, there was a high risk of it to cause uh, like birthing defects and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And so there was a lot of controversy over it. A lot of people got really upset over it. Well, we have genetically modified corn that has Roundup in it. It has glyphosate as part of the, of, the, of the corn and it's called Roundup Ready Corn. And so, and like the same goes, we have like Roundup Ready Cotton, we have Roundup Ready, like a bunch of crops have been genetically modified with this. So a lot of people are like, hey, we can't eat that. It's going to cause birthing defects. There hasn't been a link yet to corn that has Roundup in it having the same effects as Roundup itself. It's almost, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's just because it's in a lot more of a trace amount or if it's just because of, of the, you know, the chemical composition of the corn itself is kind of diluting the, you know, the danger of, of the Roundup or whatever it is. But there have been fears about, you know, GMOs causing autism or causing, you know, other, other, other genetic deformities or causing, uh, you know, like, you know, cancer. I, to this day, and, and I, I always make the claim of like, I'm not an expert. The thing is you have fear like that of, sorry everything but yeah you have fear of that in like vaccines and right all that. so that, yeah and also uh, just before you continue i want to kind of say one thing it's you know just if for everything it's like there's an amount of it that will kill you and there's an mm-hmm. amount that will do absolutely no harm you can drink too much water you can eat too much lettuce or something right. everything can kill you in sufficient amounts yes no absolutely and that's always my my you know that's always my, my counter argument is that you know, like people say, oh, GMOs will cause cancer. Walking outside will cause cancer. You know, the sun causes cancer. You know, you, you can't make a claim of, you know, like obviously there are some chemicals that are worse for you than others. Like smoking is, is a lot you know, is a lot more likely to cause you cancer than eating, uh, you know, eating a salad probably is. But that's not to say that, you know, anything's impossible. Like, you know, that like you can make the claims that GMOs cause cancer, but there hasn't really been any scientific evidence that supports that claim. And if there's really no scientific evidence supporting it, then I'm not really going to back it. And I actually had somebody before kind of challenge that and said, well, how do you know that they're not just botching the evidence that like, you know, they, they're not releasing it that way. Nobody finds out. I was like, because they're not terrible people. Like I, I I'm, I'm pretty sure they would, you know, if, if they knew there were bad things happening with this food and also it's 10 crops, you know, like it, it's not like it's a massive majority of our food. Yeah. But like coming back to that, this, the, the example I used before tobacco industry, so this is, many this studies is true. that were so like, you know, I get the people like, majority of the people in the, any industry are never evil and never that but there's always kind of some there's always someone who might just focus more on the revenue and that's the same fair. way you know as, as long as there are examples of it happening which tobacco i i don't know i, I get that on one hand it's kind of it was it's one of the, like the few examples so always coming back to it could is kind of deficient to the progress it can bring but i would also say it's important to be aware of the fact well it is actually possible that a lot of these studies could just be uh, pushed by the, you know, uh, pushed by a lot of the businesses that are actually driving them to be more kind of positive towards what it's arguing. But that brings me on to something I kind of wanted to uh, touch on with this, which is like, I, I get, you know, I get in the US, a lot of this is heavily, heavily privatized. A lot of this research is completely privatized and all that, which, you know, I prefer that, but let's not get into that part. But uh, in you know in a lot of European countries you have a lot like these studies are oftentimes 
commissioned and overviewed and all that by a lot of governments when they're trying to decide what is actually the right solution. Now there, you know, you still have some bias, you still have some motivation, but at least there I would expect the, you know, the research to find something. If there is a problem and a lot of those countries are looking to ban them, well then, of course they should like try to find problems. And if they have, if even the, you know, in, even if even here they haven't found problems, uh, like clear problems, if you know that can be proven, then I really don't see how you could have such a, you know some kind of a clear bias of everyone's trying to hide these horrible effects from you. Because even with tobacco, you had countries where they were like, oh yeah, there's problems here, there's stuff here, and it was just kind of pushed back, so it wasn't very public, but it still existed out there. Right, and so and you know that that's. Uh, a solid point and the reason you know the reason i often kind of refute the uh, tobacco argument which is it, it's a fair point but the reason you know the, the reason the tobacco industry hit it for so long is because like you said they're making money off of it you can make more money off of non-genetically modified foods than genetically modified foods you know we already talked about the labeling issue how you know these companies are getting paid more to tell you that genetically modified foods are going to kill you than you know than the people who are actually producing the genetically modified foods i would say that you know if if you could sell GMO foods for more then sure. I, I would you know, be totally on, on the, on the uh, idea of, yeah, it's possible they're hiding some stuff, but you know, I've looked through all the reports of why countries have been banning GMOs and mm. most of them have to do with the fact that the public just doesn't trust them and won't buy them. Like it's not even like full on like, Oh yeah, our research team found some issues. So we're just going to not, you know, not sell them in our markets for a while. It was more like our people don't trust them. So we're not going to, we're not even going to deal with them. And right. so I, I, and like I said, you know, there's always a possibility that there's something there that we just don't know about yet, but I just haven't really seen a, enough evidence to really support that claim. So I'm not really on board of it just yet. But uh, the thing is like you kind of mentioned that, uh, you know, GMOs and so non-GMOs are uh, kind of more expensive, but what about the kind of comparative cost as far as the net profit on them? Because when I think about it, of course, uh, like non-GMO crops, also they have lower yields, so they've got to cost more to produce. Mm -hmm. So is the actual profit margin when you take away the money that goes to the organization higher than for GMO crops? And also is, you know, because when you talk about it, the motivation to push one narrative or another comes if the businesses, so, you know, if it's competing businesses, so if you have a separate businesses that have GMO crops and the separate businesses, which mainly focus on non-GMO crops, but you could, but what, because I don't know, potentially is it is it that one company or like a conglomerate, several companies have both the GMO and non-GMO crops. And in that case, it would start to make sense to have some collusion there for a push. Right. No, and that's that's, that's a solid point. Um, when it comes to growing non-GMO crops, uh, the profitability is, I would say, marginal. You know, there, there's really not a, a ton of, of difference just because the input costs are almost identical. Um, the the difference is non-GMO crops might take a bit more input, you know, input costs in regarding to pesticide use, because again, they don't have that resistance. But again, I would go back to the idea that only 10 crops, at least in the United States, and even less for other countries are genetically modified. And therefore all other crops are going to be grown exactly that, that same way. And so because of that, there's less room for, you know, for that idea of, of, you know, of, it's more profitable to produce GM crops. It is in, in, you know, in a sense, but it's also more expensive because GM seeds actually cost more than the non GM seeds. Um, right. If you're talking about organic, that's a whole nother thing. Organic, you know, organic farming is a lot more expensive to get into, but there's a lot bigger paycheck at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's kind of like a, you know, high risk, high reward kind of situation. Um, but 
it, it, it's a difficult, you know, it's a difficult claim to make that people are, because there are people who grow both, you know, they both, they grow both GMO and non-GMO, but it's, it's not always because they want to cause like schisms in the market and more so because it's more profitable, it's more profitable to, to grow GM soybean soybeans and non-GM corn, because maybe that's what they have access to in their area. Or maybe because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, like I said, maybe they're trying to grow crops that there is no genetically modified variant. And so people say like, oh, you're growing both GMOs and non-GMOs. You're probably trying to sp- spread some salt, some false narrative. And it's like, well, maybe grapes aren't genetically modified. So I'm growing grapes and corn. So I only have the option of non-GMO grapes and GMO corn. Like that's just what's available to me. So mm-hmm. it's a lot more circumstantial than, than, you know, just like a clean cut. Yes. So they're, they're doing this. So this is going to cause suspicion. There's just because of the lack of abundance of GMOs in our, in our production. And because of the, you know, the very minuscule difference between the profit margin between GM and non-GM crops, it's just not quite, I don't think there's enough there yet to really make a, a solid claim on it just yet. Right. But So one thing that kind of doesn't make sense to me is because you mentioned that the input costs for GMO and non-GMO are the same. Mm-hmm. And if they are the same, you know, per unit of crop, then what's the point of GMOs unless it's literally just space efficiency? Because if, if you have the same, if you have the same input cost, mm-hmm. then no matter how big the population like globally is, this, you just put more of the money towards it. So is the reason for GMOs being used uh, since the input costs and then output costs basically are similar, just a higher cost for non-GMOs, why would anyone use uh, GMOs since if the, if the costs per unit are to produce are basically the same as you mentioned, then there's no reason to use GMOs. So I would say that at that point, there's, there needs to be a conversation had about the, the steps in between the farmer and the retailer. So on the farmer level, the input costs may be similar. You know, it costs the same to plant the seeds. It costs the same to uh, fertilize them, to, to, you know, to, to do the irrigation systems. They all have the same requirements. There are some crops that are genetically modified to be more drought tolerant. And so they might, they may require less of an input in terms of irrigation. Uh, there are some crops that if, if, you know, and some crops that are not even genetically modified, they're just naturally more drought tolerant. And so they're going to have difference in, in input costs just because of that. Um, but let's just say I were to grow two cornfields right next to each other, one's GM and one's non-GM. If, you know, it's it's going to cost pretty much exactly the same all the way up until the pesticide point. Once at the spray, then the costs are going to be slightly different. So I'm obviously not going to have to spray my GM field nearly as much as my non-GM field. So that's going to be a difference in input costs. Everything else is going to be fairly similar, but you're also going to have the higher input costs of the GM seeds, GM seeds being, you know, costing more than non-GM seeds. So then you start to see the input costs be fairly similar between spraying and, and the seeds, but it depends on how much you're spraying and how many seeds you get. And, you know, if all of your seeds germinate properly and all that kind of stuff, where you start to see the difference is like, you know, like we already talked about the higher yields for the GM crops are going to, you know, to, to earn that farmer a bit more of, of a pay grade. But when we start to look at the processing plant, you know, the processors are going to throw out any foods that are not to snuff in terms of, you know, their, their quality requirements. So like they're doing, they're doing food safety evaluations Mm -hmm. and they find non-GM crops that are covered in bugs and they're, they're going to throw that out. They're going to throw out less of the GM crops because they're not going to have bugs on them. They're not going to be as, you know, as, as, uh, as uh, unclean for lack of a better word, they're going to be a lot more uniform. They're going to have a lot higher yields. They're going to look a lot more, uh, you know, market ready for lack of a better term. Um, but 
So, you know, when, when a processor is going through it, it's going to be less wasted food. And so that's going to change some, that's going to change the price a bit as well, because they're going to have more GM cross because they survived the, the, the sorting of it a bit more easily. And then you go through the whole labeling process and to label something non-GMO, there's a cost with that as well. That's actually what raises the price in the store. So when you talk about everything that goes in between the farmer and the retailer, you start to see that there's going to be some difference in cost, but along the way for, for both products, typically mm -hmm. GM crops tend to come out cheaper just because they tend to have less issues and there tends to be less wasted food along the way. Meanwhile, the non-GM crops or, or even the organic crops, they're getting thrown out. They're having labels put on them. They're having all this marketing done towards them, which costs more money and, and ultimately costs, you know, it costs the consumer more, even though the, the input costs of both of those crops may have been very similar. All right. So the, so basically, if I understand correctly, the per market, you know, let's call it market ready unit of the crop with GMOs, that's, that's, that's still cheaper. Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you're going to the store and you're going to buy a GM corn versus non-GM corn, the GM corn is going to be a lot cheaper just because like you said, it, it is, um, it's cheaper to produce in a sense, but it's, you know, the input cost may not be as, um, you know, the input cost may be relatively similar, but you're, you're maintaining more of the crop and, and higher quality crop at the end of the day, which is going to, which is going to be easier on, on the, the retailer than, than the, the non-GM stuff that gets thrown out throughout the processing mm -hmm. plant. Yeah. So the, the let me just kind of explain what confused me here because uh, yeah. like, typically within economics if you kind of talk about the input cost you look at like the per output unit mm -hmm. so it because you know it so it's what you, basically if i just to kind of check again i understand correctly the input cost per field is very similar than the cost per the actual output unit is lower that, right. that's how it works right yeah i would say that's that's an accurate way of looking at it Okay, cool. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, disclaimer for, you know, for anyone listening and, and for, for you as well, I'm no expert on this. You know, this is all based off of research that I've done, but you know, there's always things that I'm going to miss because I'm not an economist. And I'm, I'm not actively involved in every step of the, of the process. I have seen the process and I have kind of watched, you know, from, from step one to, to the, the, the final, you know, the end point of the product kind of what happens, but there's always things that I'm going to miss. And I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm a college student, so I'm not going to know everything, but um, so, yeah. So if anyone, you know, if anyone ever finds things in their own research or through their own experiences that are different than what I'm saying, I'm more than happy to, you know, to be challenged and, and I may, you know, I may be wrong. You know, there are some things that I could be inaccurate about, but these are all based off of things that I've done, you know, research on over the past six years and that I've experienced through my encounters with the processing plants and all that kind of stuff and talking to farmers who actually do go through this kind of stuff. Right. And so that, that kind of brings me back to something we talked about with like Sweden having to import a lot of their produce and things like this. Uh, I'm assuming, you know, that that's got to come from some countries. And is that, you know, uh, is that purely based on kind of the arable land that that's accessible in those countries or is how, how they kind of accounted for? Because normally when you kind of think about a country's agriculture, it's kind of aiming at supply locally and then a bit for export. And if Sweden has to import a lot of it, do they have kind of, do they look at other countries and discuss with them, hey, we're going to need a large supply from you. And then those other countries intentionally kind of boost up their production. Because if, if that's the case, and then you think about the fact that they, they also often subsidize a lot of the agriculture, that seems to me like a lot of, like a lot of the countries that Sweden is then importing from, they, they are paying for Sweden's food in a way. 
Yes. So, so there's, there's a lot of complications with, with uh, food trades, you know, that, that's a whole, you know, that's a whole mess when it comes to economics is just because of the way the different countries work and they're, you know, there's free trade agreements that kind of come into place with that and that can change the markets in, in ways. And so I, I'd have to do more research on specifically like the Sweden situation and kind of what their agreements look like and, and what, what their food supply looks like. But the way it was explained to me by the farmer was basically he, he kind of just gave me the rundown of, you know, because their food supply is so low due to the lack of arable land, a lot of their land has been urbanized and, and the arable land or the, the land that is arable is just not, there's not enough of it to produce a sufficient supply for, you know, kind of like a self-sufficient uh, community. And so like, like the entirety of Sweden couldn't survive off of their, off of their land. And he said that one of the things that might have saved them was an increase in yield that would come from genetic modification, but their, you know, their government basically said no. And so they, I mean, obviously they still do some level of agricultural production. It's just not nearly to the degree they needed to be. And they use whatever they do, you know, whatever they do produce for trading purposes, mostly, um, or maybe like for, for small domestic use, but that's, you know, it's really not, mm-hmm. not a whole lot. So he said that a lot of their, uh, a lot of their food is a lot more expensive because it's having to be imported. And so the, you know, the import costs are, are changing, you know, the, the markets a bit on, on what food is available to them. So it's like, it's, it's really expensive to eat in Sweden just because the fact that they, they don't have access to their own food anymore. And so I'd have to look at, you know, the specifics, like I said, of, of what food or what countries are supplying them with food and what those countries are, uh, demanding in terms of, in terms of price, you know, and for, for that export, you know, for the exportation of the food. But I, yeah, I I really, I'm not quite sure what, what that transaction looks like or how that impacts the price of, you know, the, the growing cost of that, of that food versus the, you know, versus the purchasing price of of the food in, in the final country that it ends up in. But yeah, I, I, I really, I don't, I'm not quite sure. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Cause you know, looking at it kind of, because I'm I'm in the UK and the UK is also quite known for importing a lot of its food, and it, I don't know it, it just seems like a lot of the subsidization kind of works inefficiently. Mm-hmm. But yeah, anyway, uh, I think we will have to kind of look into that a bit more. But I think this kind of brings us a little bit to our second topic. We, you know, we talked about the GMOs, a lot of the pesticides and stuff. Well, there's also another pest, which I guess you could call <laughs> a lot of the. I guess uh, actually, what do you call the animals that uh, kind of mess up a lot of crop? Uh, well, I feel like there's a term for them, and I'm forgetting it. Pests is 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 kind of the common term, but wildlife would be kind of the probably, probably the yeah, best. Oh way yeah, to oh yeah, pest and then pestis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I got it. I don't know. For some reason, when I was thinking pests just now, I was just thinking just the little bugs and not the actual animals. <laughs> yeah, no, anything. I mean, even like weeds are considered pests. So anything that yeah. can that can basically a pest is is defined as anything that is not part of the operation and can disrupt the operation. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So, yeah, when it comes to that, uh, the one thing that uh, kind of happens there is a lot of the are a lot of the animals very much kind of because uh, there you know you need, there's a lot of population management that goes on with planning and the hunting community. Uh, when you're kind of let's say you have a new area in a country, where let's say you know a big farm is a lot of land, and they're moving over to let's say a slightly different crop because it makes more sense for them. Are are there some discussions around the impact that's going to have on the, I guess, pest or wildlife population in that area? Because, for example, it might be more fitting for one animal as opposed to another. Yeah, definitely. I think in, in most operations, the impact on the ecosystem is always a consideration uh, because you always, you know, whenever you uh, develop a plot of land for agricultural use, you always have to kind of consider what your environment is and how that's going to impact your crops and vice versa. 
Um, and not just crops, if you, if you have livestock too, that can also have an impact because, mm. you know, some local pests for, for livestock operations, maybe coyotes or wolves or, you know, anything that can, that can damage your, your animals. Um, so that's always a consideration when, you know, when starting an operation, but I wouldn't say necessarily that that's always the inspiration for hunting hunting in in the united states kind of tends to take one of two paths um Mm -hmm. so like like you mentioned you know in in your home country um that the the purpose of hunting is mostly for preservation that is one of the purposes for hunting here you know we have we have regulated hunting laws that are entirely for the purpose of of an environmental conservation it's for the sake of making sure that we don't deplete the population of certain animals too much there is a certain level of trophy hunting that's kind of involved too. I, I personally don't exactly support trophy hunting quite as much. I prefer, you know, if you're going to hunt, then it needs to be used for something, either eat the meat or, you know, use it for preservation of, of the population or whatever the case may be. You hear a lot of people that oppose hunting, you know, because of, of those reasons, they're like, Oh, you know, you're just going to mount on your wall and you're, and you know, you're just killing animals for no reason without exactly realizing that hunting is a very necessary part of population control. And that without it, those animals will start to have a lot of complications in their, in their ecosystem due to overcompetition of, of resources. And so like, that's a whole thing in, in, in and of itself, but the way agriculture and hunting tend to relate to each other tends to be, like you mentioned, more on the pest side of things and also on the, uh, the impact of the ecosystem. So like, as, mm. as agricultural land is, is being developed, the, you know, the surrounding areas, you know, they might have a deer or two that kind of wander in and they're fine. You know, people tend to not bug them. But if you have a, you know, uh, a, a coyote that's eating your chickens or a fox that's coming in and, and attacking your, your chickens or, or your, you know, your lambs, you might want to get out there and, and kind of, you know, pick off some of those, some of those animals in the surrounding areas. And, you, you know, most, most people that I know of don't do it just for the sake of doing it. There, there's typically, they're doing it for the protection of their animals and for the protection of their land. Um, but it's, not always cut and dry, you know, everyone kind of has a different reason for going into it. If that, if that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, cause you know, whenever there is a kind of pest that uh, is shot above land, there's actually a big controversy. I, I'm not sure mm-hmm. say, but there's a big discussion uh, within the UK and the EU about the use of lead cartridges. For example, especially mm-hmm. pigeons are a big problem here uh, for a lot of farmers because they, you know, eat a lot of the seeds, which significantly reduces the yields and there is a big argument around using of lead shot, and uh, the, there's a lot of kind of regulatory push to move towards just only allowing use of steel shot. Mm-hmm. So, how is you know w- w- what is kind of the impact if if you know of using uh, kind of the, the ammunition when you're shooting? If you do use a lot of lead cartridges, is there a notable impact on the actual crop, or is that just marginal? And again, kind of like with the GMOs, it is heavily driven by fear. This move that's going on in the UK. So I will say that I can't remember if it was last year or the year before, but, but recently uh, in my home state of California, they, they recently changed the regulation. So I, we're not allowed to use lead shot. We can only use steel shot for hunting. Um, mm-hmm. And that had some ramifications on the hunting communities, but I wouldn't say it had massive changes in, in terms of agricultural purposes. Um, I personally don't know if, if there is a massive, you know, uh, drawback to using lead shot on agricultural land. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe there is, and I just haven't been told about it, but a lot of the, a lot of the people that I know that were impacted by that, you know, I mean, right now it's not much of an issue because you can't even get ammo. I mean, everywhere ammo is just sold out. Oh yeah. Saying. U.S. is with ammo. <laughs> it's terrible. 
Yeah, because I like in Czech Republic, we because we we make a massive amount of ammunition, so there's mm-hmm. always a surplus. So even when there was a small kind of rush for weapons for like guns and ammunition, we had more than enough. And I remember talking to some friends of the U.S. and they were like, "Can you just send me like a box of nine <laughs> right. millimeter? I'll pay you like two hundred bucks." Right. Yeah. So, so that's that, like, like it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So like having the conversation about that right now is just like that's not a thing. But I can I can speak on how it was before everything went crazy. Um. But yeah. So I. The people that I, you know, usually go shooting with or go hunting with, um, they're all dairymen. You know, they're all actively involved involved in the dairy industry. I ha- I know some that grow trees or they grow other, you know, row crops. And when they when they switched over to the steel shot, they were talking about, you know, everything about how how terrible steel shot was when hunting, just because it was way less efficient. It didn't travel as far. It didn't it didn't seem to impact the animals as much, which also caused issues because we, you know, when hunting, kind of the idea from the from the humanitarian perspective is if you shoot, you know, if you shoot an animal, you shoot to kill. You know, you do not yeah. allow that animal to suffer. And so they were kind of concerned from that perspective that they never really mentioned anything about it impacting their farms at all. They seemed to not really think that it had much of an impact. It didn't really affect the soil much, but that might've been kind of, you know, just the ignorance of, of the farmers at the time. They didn't really understand that it was causing any issues if it was, but I haven't, you know, I, I, again, I haven't done the research on it properly, but I haven't heard of any, you know, any potential long-term negative effects that could be used, that could be drawn from using lead shot versus steel shot. Yeah, because like when when I was kind of looking at this and I was kind of thinking about it, uh, you have you know a lot of game that is hunted with lead shots. Like you have uh, boars that are often you know sometimes you shot with slugs, which are just an ounce of lead, and they're 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 all past like the food and safety requirements, mm. so they can be eaten. So it seems to me like well, if you can literally eat an animal that was just shot through with lead, and there is you know there's no really high concentrations in the land it would have made sense to me for that to not be a real problem. But yeah, I, I don't know as, as far as the impact of that. But one thing that I just kind of got thinking about is there was there was kind of a video uh, from Made in Czech Republic back in 2018 around the conservation that was talking a lot about the impact because you were t- talking about row crops and like trees and all that. Mm-hmm. And there was a discussion there about uh, the kind of the impact of adding trees and all that to align a lot of fields and how that affected the wildlife population as far as uh you know how it used the field and things like that so what are kind of the considerations that go into for example adding the trees and all that and then maybe how it might tie into the effects on wildlife so a big part of the decision of using trees versus row crops and and you know or or doing other styles of agriculture tend to rely on the markets mostly and that's that's kind of the biggest drivers is the markets and secondary kind of comes from the the viability of the land that's available to them so which you you would think it'd be the opposite but that's you know farmers got to make money too so um kind of the first consideration that goes into it is so like i'll, I'll speak you know on behalf of my hometown tulare uh we are a a dairy state you know like we're actually considered the dairy capital of california and california is the dairy capital of the world and all that kind of stuff so we are uh, very, very heavily focused on the dairy industry. Well, uh, I'd say probably about, oh, let's see, three or four years ago, maybe even longer, the dairy industry started to see a pretty heavy decline in the economy. You know, milk prices started going way down, price of cows was going way down, the cost to actually run a dairy just wasn't quite what it used to be. And so it became really, really hard for smaller dairies to kind of sustain themselves economically. And so they started looking into other facets as, as kind of ways of 
maintaining their their you know agricultural land without having to to sell out and you know and lose the family farm kind of idea but without having to to lose basically all their money to the to the dairy you know the lacking dairy economy um so that was kind of a big motivation for a lot of them to move towards the tree route and especially because they chose trees because for one they're um they're uh not not perennial is it perennial I can't remember which one's which they're, they're, they're long-term, you know, they're, they're not like mm-hmm. row crops where you have to rotate them every season and all that kind of stuff. Trees just stay for like years. Um, and so there was a big push for almonds and pistachios to start being planted because almonds are the, uh, they mature more rapidly, but they only produce for about seven years Whereas pistachios. They take, you know, quite a few years to produce, but or not, I'm sorry. Almonds, I think start producing after seven years. I could be completely wrong on this. I need to get my numbers straight. They start producing after a few years, and but they don't mm-hmm. produce for as long. Whereas pistachio trees, they take much longer to start producing, but they produce a lot higher quality product, a lot higher price product, and they produce for you know for like a hundred years. Um, so that was a big motivation was they don't have to worry about row cropping, they don't have to worry about crop rotation or worrying, worrying about the soil or anything like that. They could just plant their trees, they could you know fertilize them, they could check on the soil composition to make sure the soil is for is you know fertile properly enough for the for the trees, they could irrigate them, and that was it. Like they didn't have to really worry about it. Um, a big move towards you know the trees was was also uh like like I said, you know, there's obviously the economic reasons was they could make a lot of money off of those crops, but it was also the convenience thing. You know, they weren't having to worry about checking the markets all the time and making sure that their that their crop was going to be sustainable because they really weren't going to rip out those trees. Like there was no reason to, uh, because even if the, the even if the, the the if the fruit they were producing wasn't profitable right now, it probably would be by the next year or by the next few months or whatever. So, whereas they couldn't rely on that kind of sustainability with the dairies or with some of the row crops. So, and a lot of it had to do with our soil. You know, we're right in the heart of, of, of California, which has some of the most fertile soil in the world and it can, it can grow almost anything. So really it was kind of like, well, what's the most profitable crop? We're going to grow that here. So that was part of it. Um, mm. In terms of its impact on the wildlife, that I'm not entirely sure of. I haven't I haven't noticed ma- you know ma- major changes to the wildlife in the area. I will say that the pests obviously are going to be a, d- a bit different just because there's different fruit now versus what there used to be. You know they they went from growing corn to growing pistachios, and the, you know they have very different types of pests. So you would see migrations of different pests uh, pest species that we typically wouldn't see, but mostly they're small bugs that don't really impact the urban population. So it wasn't something that it was like common knowledge to most people so i mean i mean i don't know it, it's difficult to say that there was no changes in, in terms of the ecosystem because there definitely was but i couldn't speak on behalf of like major changes to the ecosystem mm-hmm. and just a question because i realized i have no idea pistachios they're not domestic to california are they right so pistachios originally come from japan and for the longest time japan was the only country that produced them california originally or after a while, California started to grow their own and they kind of took over the pistachio market. But yeah, it used to just be Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like when, it, it, you know, normally kind of discussions in offices like in the UK that I've seen about introducing like a new crop, like, you know, let's, let's imagine the UK was bringing in pistachios. That would be kind of a nationwide massive discussion about the impact and considerations of increasing this and everything that's going on. While the way you described it in the U.S., it seems like the you know the farmers were like, "Hey, pistachios are what makes most sense for us to kind of increase here. Let's do that." Like, how how is kind of the approach to the impact of bringing new types of crops uh, different in the U.S. Or, well, on, on one hand, I, I suppose like with globalization, there isn't that many new crops you can bring in around the world. 
But I suppose like how how would how is the approach in the US around something like this? I mean, it's difficult to say because I think, and this has kind of just been in my experience, I could be completely wrong, but it seems to me that in the US, agriculture is a bit more of an independent enterprise, uh, whereas in other countries, it tends to be a lot more either community driven or kind of more uh, like, not uh, community driven is a bad word for it. Um, it seems to be a lot more, you know, people focus on the market of their area instead of just kind of what they want to do by themselves. And I think in the United States, it's a lot more kind of, you know, this is what I want to do because this is what I want to do. There's a certain level of consideration for your area and kind of who works, you know, around you. So like, you know, if I wanted to grow orange trees where I live right now, I would need to make sure that somebody who can collect orange trees and bring them to the processing plant is nearby. You know, I I can't just grow orange trees out in the middle of nowhere because then I'm going to have to bring them into town by myself and I don't want to have to do that. So there's a certain consideration for location in that regard. But other than that, most people kind of just, function off of what they want to do like if one guy in you know in a town full of corn growers decides he wants to grow cotton because he looked at the markets and cotton was doing well he would do that and so it's you know it's it's a lot less dependent on kind of a group mentality that i, that I tend to see more common in, in, in more european countries and it's almost almost more of like a i'm going to do this and if, if you guys think it's a good idea then you can join me if not then screw you i'm going to do it anyways and mm-hmm. it actually did happen a couple of years ago uh, cotton used to be a very popular commodity in california especially in my, you know, in my part of California. And then it kind of died off for a while. A few years ago, though, for some reason, the cotton market just started booming. And literally, you know, almost every farmer in, in my hometown started growing cotton, which they haven't done in a long time. Now, obviously, as I'm sure you can imagine, that saturated the market and brought the price back down. So nobody grew cotton anymore. But that kind of stuff happens pretty frequently is, you know, you have one guy who's like, I'm going to see if this works. And it works. And everyone who follows in and does it, and then it stops working. So then they, they have to change their formula. So, I'm not sure if that answered your question. I was kind of having a hard time kind of... Yeah, no, that, make, that, that makes sense because basically, yeah, since you're like in, in the US, it's very much just uh, demand-driven while in Europe, you know, you have a lot of regulation about what crop you can farm. Like I remember I was talking to uh, some farmer, uh, at, you know, down in the south of Czech Republic and he was telling me, well, I want to switch to this crop because the demand and all that is here, but the government won't let me. Which mm. now, you know, look at the US, that seems kind of a very different approach. But what that kind of makes me think of is, you know, this is kind of away from hunting more to kind of the finance side again. <laughs> but uh, when you have, because, you know, obviously with all these commodities, they're very much uh, securitized and traded as futures. Typically, when you have kind of large scale farmers, let's say, you know, there's a large scale move on the farmer's side towards cotton. Uh, do, is it typically that they directly sell to the suppliers that then uh, form those futures contracts? Or are they usually directly counterparties in those uh, futures contracts, or how do they typically operate on, like fr- from the fa- from you know from the f- farmer's perspective? What's the typical way to kind of fix in the prices to, you know, mitigate some of that inconsistency in the market? So it can vary from operation to operation. Usually, like kind of smaller operations will have a very different approach than than larger, uh, you know, larger production facilities. Uh, I know that for most um, for most industries that are part of LLCs or for or other you know kind of third party organizations that can kind of uh, basically preserve the the security of those farmers. So I can I know for example we have a few dairy LLCs in my area, and these LLCs will kind of uh, basically be like the, like the umbrella company for all of these dairies. Like these dairies are independent farms, obviously, but they are contracted with these LLCs that kind of preserve them a market security. And those LLCs tend to negotiate with the futures. And so 
um, as the markets, you know, rise and fall, the LLCs may preserve, you know, a, a very, like a, like a set price. So like, let's just say, you know, if the price for milk is, you know, doing really good one year, the LLCs have an agreed price for what, what the price of milk is. So, you know, the farmer still gets his money, no matter how good the, the milk is, or let's just say it's a really, really bad one year, the LLCs protect, protect the farmers from, from any losses they might've mm. experienced. So you tend to have kind of third-party organizations there to, to help mitigate some of those, you know, massive changes in the markets. Um, and they tend to do a lot of the communication with, you know, the, the, the people who, who, uh, are, in, you know, are responsible or, or at least more, more interactive with, with the futures and that kind of stuff. So that's, that's typically the most effective way to do it. Um, cause otherwise that's, I mean, that's actually the reason why so many small farmers struggle so much is because they're running almost independently. And when you run independently and your market is what dictates whether or not you make money, it can be really difficult to, to survive. So they typically kind of look for third parties to kind of help with that, with that process. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, but it, this kind of got me uh, thinking about, well, what do, you know, is, is this just a general pattern where majority of the industry has moved over to, you know, using uh, kind of third parties that then uh, kind of securitize, actually just provide security as far as pricing, or is there still a large part of the farming industry, which is kind of more small, like kind of these small, I know that it aren't really kind of small, but like kind of smaller farmers which don't go to the LCs, which then sell more directly to the market. And how does that actually work? How how you know how do they approach? Like how, how can a normal farmer sell to the market, uh, you know, in more of a traditional way? Because I, I would assume that's again through third counterparty. Mm -hmm. So there's obviously there's going to be diversity, and like every operation is going to going to function differently. Most farms in the United States are what we consider like a, kind of like a large farm. Um, and the reason why is because like I mentioned earlier, uh, between regulations and drastic changes in markets, it's really difficult for small farmers to, to thrive anymore. And so a lot of small farmers uh, sell their land out to larger farms, not for the sake of, you know, the larger farms bought them out, but more so because they're worried about that land getting eaten up by urbanization and they'd rather it stay agricultural land, even if they don't own it anymore. So a lot of small farms kind of become part of larger farms uh, just for the sake of, of their own security and, and for the security of their family. Actually, I, I know there are even some farms who buy out smaller farms and still let them operate as if, they, as, as if it's their own, but just to make sure that they don't go under. Um, so that's kind of one of the approaches that you'll see pretty often, but in terms of selling straight to the market as an independent, you know, uh, agriculturalist, it's not a super easy thing to do, but it is possible. Um, you'll see, you'll see a lot of farmers markets kind of happen because of that. You'll see a lot of, uh, farm gate operations are actually starting to become more popular. That's, that's an operation where consumers can go straight to the door of the, of the farmer and, and buy the product straight from him instead of going through the processor and the retailer and all those other steps. Um, that's becoming more and more popular. You're starting to see there are some farmers who, who can afford to go straight to the markets, but again, because of all of the price, you know, the price differences between the security from the LLC mm -hmm. and just trying to do it yourself, they tend to get undercut a lot and that can kind of discourage them from, from engaging with the markets too much. So it really depends on, on the size of the operation and how much they're willing to risk slash, you know, slash, you know, bear, um, but yeah, that you. This is where you kind of start to see divisions in in the actual types of, of operations start to happen. You see operations that are focused more on um, 
feeding other parts of the industry. So like, you know, in the cattle industry, for example, you have uh, parts of the cow, uh, of the, of the beef industry that focus on just producing beef and you have parts that just focus on producing calves and they, and those calves go on to the operations to produce beef. So it's like, you start to see almost many industries start to produce that are not even focused on feeding into the market. They're more focused on benefiting those farmers who are feeding into the market. And that's where the farm gate operations come in. And that's where the, you know, the farmer's markets come in. And so kind of like, for smaller operations, because like I said, they're not quite as common anymore. They're starting to have to find new niches to get into the markets that still make their food viable without having to go through the third parties in the markets and all that kind of stuff. And how does that work? Cause you know, uh, again in Europe, you know, if, if you had uh, like a farm trying to sell directly to consumers, there'd be an issue with kind of the food standards mm-hmm. review because there's a whole bunch of stuff that they would have to deal with as far as you know the, the government would want to absolutely check everything it would get kind of ridiculous for them how does you know how does this work in the u.s because imagine you know if you go to a retailer there's a very established process but if it's if you know if they're selling if a farmer's selling direct to consumer which is actually becoming a big trend in businesses in general and i think it's very good but mm-hmm. how does that work as far as the maintenance of standards yeah so and and like you said it, it's food safety is the number one priority of, of that kind of operation and Typically, the governments will heavily regulate those those types of operations just on food safety, but they get to avoid a lot of the other uh, more market-based regulations that a lot of farmers tend to struggle with. So that's kind of the advantage to it. Um, from the food safety perspective, I actually got to tour one of these farm gate operations. It was a hog producing um, setup, and they basically were, were explaining to me that they have to get certified for food safety training and all this kind of stuff, and they have to be inspected you know, pretty regularly, as, as I'm sure you can imagine. And, you know, if they don't pass their inspections and they don't get to, they don't get to sell food out, out their door. Um, so while there's, I guess, less of a guarantee of, of the food safety that you would normally get through the commercial operations, there's, you know, people s- seem to find more comfort in be- being able to go straight to the door rather than have to buy it at the store, that kind of thing. Cause they like to support the community. So consumers trusting it plus how often they get inspected plus they have to have all their food safety stuff in like it'd be kind of almost almost the same thing as following the standards that a restaurant would have to follow you know where they have to have all their food safety you know stuff you know in order they get regular inspections to make sure all their facilities are up to code and all that kind of stuff they get the same thing so if if they're not up to code if they're not following those same procedures then they're going to get shut down like that so it's there's a lot of a lot of government control in that regard but it's, it's even with the government kind of poking their nose in it, there's still quite a bit of independence that those, those uh, operations get to kind of, you know, thrive off of. Yeah, no, that makes sense. My my concern wasn't really about kind of the safety of it, but more of how difficult it is for the farmers, Mm -hmm. because I know this regulation often makes a lot of stuff very difficult. So I was mainly asking with the interest of, is it actually easy enough for the small farmers to do for it to stay sustainable? But yeah, it seems like it's getting kinda, easier. Sorry, I didn't mean catch off. Yeah, no, sorry, so that's fine. But you know, when it you know, with it being easier, and there's a lot of kind of discussions around like vertical farming and all this mm-hmm. being brought into cities. Would that like is is that something that you've seen kind of discussed or considered, or is this maybe even happening? We're bringing kind of as vertical farming is kind of tried to be brought into cities. That would allow an opportunity to do this kind of very direct to consumer selling. Well, right in the city, just straight from the farm. Is this something that has been tested or is this a model that's just kind of an idea that hasn't really been worked out yet? 
I think that as vertical farming continues to develop this, we'll, we'll start to see this more commonly. Uh, vertical farming is still kind of in the experimental phase here. So we really haven't seen a whole lot of that in, you know, integrated properly into our cities yet. Um, I, I will say that I think that, you know, I think that you have a, a pretty good prediction about that potentially becoming a more viable source of, of, you know, almost like farm to plate like, you know, interactions, but yeah, we just, we haven't exactly gotten the practice down to a T yet to a point where we, where we trust it to be a regular source of, of food for, for the community. So Yes, I think that there's a lot of potential there. I don't think that's going to, you know, I don't think it's going to be quite as sustainable as, you know, large scale agriculture, obviously, but it might, it might, you know, serve like a, like smaller communities and kind of be like a, like a good niche for, for certain types of people that don't trust like large scale farming or something like that. But yeah, we just, until we perfect the, the practice of vertical farming, I don't think it's going to be a regular practice just yet. Mm-hmm. And how does the actual kind of scaling compare between, you know, large scale farming and, uh, kind of trying to build in more vertical farming because when, whenever it was kind of mentioned to me, it's always kind of proposed as a solution to, you know, the, the, the increased demand. Well, solution to that be, well, you can use more land, use vertical farming. So that's, that's you know, the way I've always looked at it because that's the way it was always presented to me. So I was wondering how does it kind of compare to the efficiency? Would uh, kind of the large-scale farming just ramping up more be a kind of is a more of a reasonable solution or as vertical farming is will that play kind of an important role to keeping up with that so um, i'm looking at an article right now kind of you know to answer your question because i actually haven't done my research on how large vertical farming needs to be to be you know sufficient in terms of uh, in terms of production um because i i you know I've, I've done my research on vertical farming but you know that was kind of always like a uh, yeah it might it might be a thing someday kind of kind of talk um so this says that Uh, One acre of an indoor area offers equivalent production of at least four to six acres of outdoor capacity. So if you're looking at a scale of, you know, one acre can get you about, let's just say five acres of, of an actual farm, then we might actually see a a decent amount of viability in terms of production. It would just depend on how big of an operation that we can actually sustain. And I would say that, because I'm not sure what the production of the actual like crops you use through vertical farming, it looks like if it's, you know, the same types of yields as, as large scale farming or, or not. Um, it, let's just say it is vertical farming could be, you know, a, a nice supplement to, to, you know, traditional agriculture. I don't think it will ever replace it by any means, but I think that, you know, with, with that one to five scale, that, that seems like it'd be a pretty good, you know, potential solution to our, our lack of, of land that we're starting to see. Cause that's one of the, mm-hmm. one of the primary concerns of agriculture right now is just the, the, exponentially increasing loss of land so might be a might be a good good uh, thing to look into yeah and like what about kind of the impact of kind of the pollution of the cities because now that i'm you know if if it is kind of used at a scale in cities on one hand it could kind of help cut back on the pollution because naturally you know plants Mm -hmm. that's why you plant more trees in a city because they kind of clean the air but on the other hand that a massive amount of pollution could have an impact on the quality of the plants and the ability to consume the plants are you, is, you know, is, what, what is kind of the relation of the impact on pollution, both positive and the negative on the plants? So you, you kind of highlighted it pretty well there. I think that a lot of the advantage to, you know, using plants in urban areas is to try to clean the air. If we were to try to grow, to grow food in those areas, I think that there would be, there would have to be some, some kind of assessment of what the food safety of, of that product would look like. Um, I think that there might be the potential because I, I mean, we talked earlier about how we have crops that are 
both genetically modified and non that can absorb, you know, carbon and nitrogen from the air and, and put it back into the soil to try to regenerate some of that. I'm not sure how that would be applicable from a vertical farming perspective because we don't use traditional soil, obviously. Um, there's, you know, there's a very, a very distinct way of growing that food. So maybe if we could trick the plants, cause we could trick plants and doing all kinds of stuff. We tricked plants to stop having seeds. I mean, it's not hard to, to trick plants. They're not very smart. Um, but it, maybe we could trick plants into absorbing some of the pollution and just kind of putting it somewhere else or, or even using it to, to benefit some plants. Um, I would say that if that were to become a thing, we would start to see almost biosecure farms for food production in, in urban areas and then non-biosecure farms that are dedicated to cleaning air, you know, like almost like, you know, these, these crops are for, are for pollution management. These crops are for food, but the, you know, don't go in that area until we get, until we get the pollution situation figured out. Mm-hmm. I can see something like that happening more, more frequently if we, if we do decide to go that route. And what is kind of the view of the, a lot of the kind of farming community on implementation, uh, you know, implementation of vertical farms? Is it more of a, well, this is going to be very interesting for us. Let's get into this business potentially. Or is it more of a, well, this could actually move a lot of the business, like some of the business away from us. Let's see how it goes. You know, as with most new innovations in agriculture, the farming community is pretty split on it. Um, there's there a lot of the more traditional farmers, you know, like the 58 year old that I was talking about, like, you know, the, the, uh, old, old school kind of farmers, they're completely against it. You know, they're like, Hey, let's just keep farming where it's at. You know, why, why are we going to go to the cities? That's not how this works. Let's just keep, you know, let's keep doing what we're doing. But they also tend to realize, they, t- they also tend to not realize that we are in kind of a land crisis. We're very low on usable land. And, you know, when their farm is no longer sustainable, we're going to run out of, of food pretty quickly if we don't find other ways of growing it. A lot of the newer generation farmers I've, I've found are, are pretty supportive of the idea because they support the idea of just maintaining agriculture in any way we can, even if it has to adapt. Um, obviously, they like to keep agriculture traditional to what we have now, but if it comes down to it and we need to supplement our, our food production with some kind of urban development of agriculture, I don't think that very many new generations of agriculturalists are going, are going to oppose that very much. Actually, there's quite a few of them that are working towards trying to help with, with that thing, you know, because myself included, you know, the new generation of farmers, I'm not not a farmer, but you know, the new generation of agriculturalists, we want urban dwellers to get involved in agriculture. We want people who, who are not from rural areas to find an interest in what we're doing and to try to, you know, to put some passion into it. So if people want to start growing vertical farms in in cities and, you know, they want to start, you know, getting community projects working on, on agricultural projects that are outside of the rural sectors, by all means, you know, a lot of us are, are very much on board with that. It's just that not everyone in the community is going to be, you know, super gun gung ho about it, but we, you know, what are you going to expect? Right. I think this kind of brought us roundabout to the start and it reminded me of one more question yeah. uh, that I had to ask before. Uh, I think I'll be completely exhausted of any questions <laughs> I have. I'll have to process this for a while to figure out because it was, it was very interesting, which is like, what are kind of the active kind of efforts into actually getting more people into uh, farming because we talked about that you know the games and movies and all that which feels like kind of more of a passive because it's mm-hmm. more involved because it exists but are there any more active efforts for example on the you know educational sites for example schools universities things like that or for example like doing apprenticeships or things like that that to encourage more people to go into uh, farming or is it mainly the stuff we talked about at the start well Ironically enough, you're looking at it. 
we are actually engaging in it right now. Um, a lot of involvement of, you know, let me, let me back up a little bit. The idea of getting people involved in agriculture that don't come from it is kind of a newer idea as something that a, a lot of those involved in agriculture didn't really see to be an issue until recently. A lot of them still don't. Uh, that's kind of a newer generation thing too, is we're starting to see the issue with people not knowing where their food comes from and voting off of those decisions, even though they don't know what's happening. Um, I started my podcast three years ago and I'm actually, so I'm, I'm in school right now studying to be a teacher, uh, a teacher, you know, a high school agriculture teacher. There are a lot of, in, in the United States, there's a lot of agricultural education programs that are focused on getting kids involved in agriculture and teaching them leadership skills like public speaking and job interviews and like how to lead teams and problem solving, all that kind of stuff with the basis of learning agriculture as kind of their examples to, to benefit those things. I learned how to speak by speaking on agricultural issues. I, you know, before high school, I grew up in an agricultural town with, with parents who were involved in it, but I had no interest in it. When I started speaking about these issues and saw how big of a deal this was, I immediately changed my mind and decided I wanted to be a teacher because I thought it was too important to just not let this happen. So I started my podcast back three years ago when I was 18, when I was, you know, a senior in high school, because I had seen that the root of a lot of the issues that were, that were facing agriculture were due to people not really knowing where the food came from, that, you know, the issue of GMOs was a, was an education issue that the issue with, uh, you know, pesticides was an education issue or rather a communication issue. Um, that the issue with new technology was a communication and education issue. So I kind of made it my goal to incorporate more people, not just those who are going into high school, but those who have already left and have already kind of missed their chance to still be able to learn about agriculture. And so I searched, cause I used to listen to podcasts all, all the time. I still do occasionally, but I searched like relentlessly for podcasts about agricultural education. Couldn't find a single one. Every agriculture podcast was about the economy. It was about the industry. It was about the technology. None of them were about education or having conversations with people outside of the industry. So I decided to make my own. And I decided to start off by interviewing people in agriculture to try to get their perspectives on it and to try to provide information to people about their industries. I worked for about two years, didn't get super popular, but that was fine. And then I decided to switch it up and actually approach people directly. I started to kind of realize that people aren't going to go looking for agriculture and EC brought to them because they don't care unless they're, unless it's not necessarily shut down their throats, but kind of, you know, unless their attention is brought to it because it's not the forefront of their minds. So I focused my efforts on having conversations with people directly about these issues, about what's going on in agriculture, about why it's worth talking about, about why they should care. And as I did that, I was kind of surprised to find that there's a ton of people that are curious about agriculture. Like they have so much interest, so much passion for it, but they had nowhere to learn about it. I got a bunch of my other friends in, in the ag industry involved in this. Now they are all running podcasts. I actually, I'm not gonna say I was the founder of Ag Education Podcast, but I definitely was one of the first. And I found quite a few since, since I've started that have kind of followed in my footsteps that have seen the, you know, seen the, the importance of, of this, you know, this conversation and kind of taken it into their own hands. So now there's a ton of ag education based projects out there. There's websites that are dedicated to uh, curriculum that can be used on, you know, uh, kindergarten through eight through eighth grade kind of schools that, you know, help kids learn about agriculture at a young age. There are, you know, education systems for high school students, for university students. There's, uh, you know, podcasts that are dedicated to agriculture education, having conversations like the ones we just had. There's, uh, you know, all kinds of, you know, projects and, you know, and things that people are working on right now 
all dedicated to making sure that those who do not know about agriculture have the chance to learn about it because they didn't before. So that's kind of the effort right now is, you know, agriculture, we're really behind the game. We're very technologically advanced, but we haven't been on Facebook ever. You know, like this is something that, you know, farmers don't actively get involved in social media. They don't actively get involved in online projects. And this is why people don't know about agriculture because we are not telling them. And so myself and a few of my friends have made an effort out of trying to include those in agriculture who want to learn about it. That's why I don't refuse anyone an interview. And I don't, I, there's no such thing as a stupid question because people want to learn as long as you give them the chance to learn. And a big problem for agriculture for a while was we were turning people away because we didn't trust them and they didn't trust us. And that was the wrong approach. And so to answer your question, you know, that was a long winded answer, but yes, there are things out there that are working on trying to integrate people in agriculture more. I think there needs to be more things out there. I think we need to be working harder and that there needs to be more of an integration of agriculture into common education systems than there is, especially worldwide, because the United States is one of the few countries that actually does implement agriculture into common education, but they don't require it. It's just an elective. You can just take it if you want to. I think it needs to be, again, not drilled in anybody's mind, but they need to have better access to that information if they're looking for it. And that's not happening. And so that's something that that's kind of the goal of this podcast and others like it is, you know, to make sure that people are getting integrated with their food and where it comes from and all everything that goes around it. Yeah, no, I have to say like, that's really great. And especially like with your podcast and all that, I've, I've, it, you know, you're doing an absolutely amazing job. I've really enjoyed this great, you know, great question, a great job, like answering everything, the way you explain stuff, it really makes a lot of sense. And I just do want to say kind of one thing, because you mentioned that, in a lot of kind of Europe, you don't have uh, kind of the agriculture education. Well, actually, uh, what we do have is where uh, when, whenever you're doing geography, there is part, so you have one term, so about six months spent specifically on farming, uh, mm. one, you know, once in primary school, once in middle school, and once in high school, and mm. where geography is a compulsory, uh, you know, a compulsory module. And as such, we actually do have a bit of kind of compulsory farming education which is where basically most of my farming education comes from. <laughs> but yeah, so like, thank you very much, uh, you know, for doing this. I have to say it's really fascinating. And I, I definitely get to listen to this podcast, for, you know, after this, because I just want to learn more. I'm really excited <laughs> about this. Awesome. Well, I definitely appreciate you taking the time. I mean, I actually didn't know that about European education systems. So that's really cool. I'm actually glad that I'm glad that I was able to, to learn that because that's I've said forever that, you know, other countries because you know not to say that the united states does it better because the united states honestly has a terrible education system and our our agricultural education is good but it could be a lot better and like i said it's not it's not compulsory like like your guys's is which is something i think needs to be stressed a bit more but no i think that you know it was definitely a lot of fun i really enjoyed having the conversation i'm glad that you're able to bring kind of the more economic side of things to this because this is something that doesn't get brought up a ton in my conversations. People want to know the specifics of the operation, not so much what, you know, what the economic side of things is going to be or how that impacts the the world market versus just the, you know, the, the agricultural market and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think it was a lot of fun. I think you asked some great questions and if you have more, I always like to invite my guests a chance to come back on. So if you come up with more stuff, then we are more than happy to do a part two. Absolutely. I feel like, like today I'm going to go away. I've got to 
think about it. I go to sleep, but I guarantee you in, in the morning, I'm going to send you like a thousand more questions. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. And anytime I see articles that makes me think of my guests or anything that, you know, I think, you know, there's, there's been a few questions you asked me today that I didn't know the answer to. And anytime I, that happens, I'm the kind of person that if I don't know, I need to know. So I'll go and do the research and I, I'll send it to, to you and all that kind of stuff. So you may get some articles from me from stuff that reminds Excellent. me of you. Excellent. <laughs> Right, awesome. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure being here. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Before we close out, would you like the chance to kind of replug all your stuff, let everyone know who you are and where they can find you? Uh, I think all I'm just going to mention, I'm Allison Mahmood. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter, which is Tim2. Uh, it's spelled weirdly. It's Q U A number two and M2. And I feel like I misspelled it. So I'm, I'm just going to probably send it to you so you can put it in the description. But uh, I don't really mind plugging anything because it's been just really enjoyable. So keep listening to this podcast if you are, because it's really nice. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the kind words and I'll definitely plug that down below so people can find you. Um, and yeah, so I, I, like I said, it really meant a lot. You were able to take the time to talk about the, all this stuff with me. It's definitely been a lot of fun. Excuse me. It's definitely, it's definitely been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, so, and also thanks to all the listeners, all the supporters that have been, you know, back in this podcast since day one. I uh, appreciate each and every one of you. Hope to catch all you guys next week. And don't forget, if you wait today, thank a farmer. <laughs>